This morning we're reading from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to seventy years or eighty, if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes. Establish the work of our hands. Great to see you again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can meet together around your word, even though we're in different houses. We pray that by your spirit, you'd open our eyes to understand its abiding significance for us. And you'd help us to appreciate Jesus and to trust him more and to value him more in Jesus name. Amen. Well, it's wonderful to see you here again today. And uh, I'd ask you to open your Bibles, if you could, to Psalm 90. Now, we've just had Easter, and last Sunday, if you were here, you would have heard Mark talk about Jesus rising from the dead. Today, I want to ask the question, what difference does it make to us that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive? What I mean to say is that he is now alive, today, on May 19th. What difference does it make to us today that Jesus is alive now? That may be a new thought for you. Uh, You've heard the Easter story. Jesus died on the Good Friday 2,000 years ago. He raised to life on the the Sunday. And then 40 days later, he ascended into heaven where he's kind of been off grid. So he hasn't died again. That presumably means that Jesus is somewhere. He's in heaven. That means that he's breathing because he has a body. He's thinking, what's he doing? What's he doing there? Presumably he's doing something worthwhile, or is he just twiddling his thumbs waiting for Judgment Day when he can come back? No, he's probably doing something worthwhile. What's he doing and what difference does it make to us? Well, Psalm 90 is the passage that we're going to go to, first of all, to try and explain this. And we'll we'll spend time in Psalm 90, then we're going to another Old Testament passage, and then before we briefly touch in the New Testament. Okay. 
Psalm 90, what is this psalm? We've heard it read. It is a prayer of God. Sorry, it is a prayer to God. And it has one um, famous verse, verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What a brilliant prayer. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Well, there's a few assumptions there, isn't it? Uh, The first is that we have limited time. Uh, We are not naturally eternal. There's a time, a day when we came into the world, there's a day when we will exit. We have a limited lifespan. Second assumption is that we ourselves, well, will probably intend uh, to be foolish in the way in which we use that time. That is, it will be natural for us to get to the end of our life and then uh, look back and then think with despair and regret, oh, I wish that I had spent my time doing the things that truly are important, even though I may have thought they were important, or maybe I didn't, but I wish that I had spent my days wisely. We will get it wrong. And therefore, third assumption, we need God to teach us. Lord, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a wise heart. So this psalm is a call upon God to give us the heart of wisdom by teaching us to number our days right. Now, in this psalm, there are three truths and one surprise. The first truth is that God is eternal. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout the generations. You know, you last longer than us. Um, Before the mountains were born, even before creation, before you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal. That's the first truth that the psalmist locks in on. The second is that even though God is eternal, we aren't. Verse 3, you turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. Uh, You may have had a week like this. Uh, My last week has been a week where I've discovered that numerous people that I've known have either died or are dying. So a family friend uh, who's my age, who had a successful toy importing business, who's married with three children, he discovered he's got aggressive motor neuron disease and only months to live. Um, Yesterday I heard news that... um, uh, a, fa- a friend of our family, we'd stayed with he and his wife, they're elderly, they're 80 years old, but we'd stayed with them in New Zealand's Bay of Plenty. I'd gone kayaking with this man just a couple of years ago, and uh, now he is dying. He's dying right now. Um, uh, you'll have heard three, three um, oh, sorry, about six weeks ago, I referred to my mum's hairdresser, who'd done her hair for about 30 years at Circular Quay in Sydney. And he was dying of cancer. Well, I heard that on Easter Sunday, he died. We have a limited lifespan. We are not eternal. We are mortal. We perish. Um, God returns us back to the dust. God's not like that. Verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone or like a watch in the night. God's eternal, but we aren't. You sweep, verse 5, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. (laughs) You know, though in the morning it springs up new, by the evening it's dry and withered. Uh, Our lives are just like that. They're as fickle as a a blade of grass. God is eternal. Um, We are not. That is, um, you know, every night we lie down in bed, don't we, and we assume we're going to wake up in the morning. Well, guess what? This is saying one day we're going to wake up and discover that we're not alive, we're dead. In fact, no, that's wrong, isn't it? because we won't wake up. We just won't. We'll be dead. Now, 
This is a truth that you might like to hide from, um, but the reality is that our present situations have brought this home uh, with a lot of force. Uh, the COVID-19 scare that we're all operating under has made us aware of our own mortality. This virus, which doesn't discriminate by class or, or race or country, uh, but just hits anyone and everyone, it reminds us of our own mortality. Wealth can't insulate us uh, from it. Uh, it will hit and people are afraid. Some of you will know we spent two weeks in isolation after visiting our daughter in um, Tasmania. Uh, we happily spent time inside. After two weeks, Narelle went shopping. And when she came back, she said, things have changed. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I went into the shops and I was smiling. I you know, tried to talk to people. No one talked. They all were at arm's distance. They were all worried. They were all walking around with fear on their faces. People are afraid. I think the COVID-19 has a, one good thing is it's, been, it's made us wake up to the fact that we are mortal and therefore to examine our lives. Um, that's why he says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Well, COVID-19 has woken us up to our mortality, but we need to have the wisdom to know then now how to number our days aright. And so we see, therefore, what our great need is. What's our great need? God's eternal, we're not. Third truth, this terrifies us. This terrifies us. Verse 7, we are consumed by your anger. We are terrified by your indignation. There's the understanding that our mortality comes from sitting under the judgment of God because of our sin. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Isn't that a scary thought? The things we do in secret, which we know are wrong, which we think can be hidden and we think with the passage of time God will forget. He doesn't forget. They're there and what a scary thing for them to be set before us and for us to deal with the consequences. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass away and we fly away. It's true isn't it? Every year that we live um, the seasons turn quicker. Every year year that we live is a smaller uh, fraction of the total lifespan, so life time seems to speed up. Uh, when we're young, we can't imagine what it would be like to be an adult. When we're in our teens, we're getting ready for what we'll do when we're grown up. When we're in our 30s or late 30s, we discover that's actually, we are grown up now. You get to someone like me, I'm about to turn 50, and you're past being grown up now. And what do I do for future planning? Well, I get ready for retirement. But then what happens when you're retired? Well, you'd love to do the things that you used to be able to do, but you can't because your body lets you down. Sorry if you're retired there. But you know what I mean. I look at um, photos of myself 10 years ago. My hair was completely brown, grey hair, nowhere to be seen. Now I look at my head in the mirror, I've got grey hair. That's why it's terribly discouraging when you go to a barber and they put this black sheet around you. I think there should be a white sheet. When you put a black sheet around you, you can't see the dark hairs that fall down. All you see are the white ones. That's very discouraging. <laughs> if you had a white sheet there, you'd just see the black ones. You'd think it was great. <laughs> um, we're mortal, aren't we? Uh, my dad, my dear old dad, has turned 83. He's been a runner all his life. And basically, um, I think it's been his insurance policy against death. He's 83. He's been retired for a long time. And yet he still catches the train into, into the city of Sydney to run in the corporate cup. 
And Dowdy's pursuing this so hard, hard that there's only one other person in the whole of Sydney who's run more corporate cups than my dad. But yet even he is surprised that his times are slowing down. He's 83. My dear old dad, bless him, he's on borrowed time. Um, their span, our span of life is but trouble and sorrow. They quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Uh, we can occupy ourselves. We can try and anaesthetize ourselves against the day of judgment. But we know it's coming. And we know that God will hold us to account. And the psalmist is speaking with a realization lived out in their lives, that they have gone through something where they have experienced the judgment on God because of their sins, and therefore they have need. Do you know what the need is? The need for this group of people and the need for us is to have an intercessor, someone who will mediate before God on our behalf, someone who has God's ear, someone who can stand in his presence and press our case for God to change. And so that's what happens Three truths. God is eternal. We are not. This is terrifying, but here's the surprise. The surprise comes in the very, very bold prayer of intercession in verse 13. Relent, O Lord. Do you know that word is repent uh, in the Hebrew, the original language? He's calling upon God to repent. Now, normally when we hear that, we're thinking that means uh, uh, God's a sinner. No, no. When it's applied, that word is applied to us, it's usually in the context of sin. We've been going one way against God. We need to repent to stop sinning, turn around and come back. When that word is used in application to God, it's saying, God, please turn from your attitude towards us. We are under your wrath at the moment. Please turn. Relent, O Lord. Have compassion upon your servants. And what he's praying for is what we all want. Satisfy us, verse 14, in the morning with your unfailing love. Give us the experience in our lives, the lived experience of being under your love so that we may sing for joy and gladness in our hearts that our experience would be singing and joy and gladness. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us. I love this. He's saying, God, please double our lives. If we've been afflicting us all our lives, double them. Extend them out that far. It reminds me of a prayer meeting that I was once involved in for a man who had incurable lymphoma, cancer of the blood cells. And we called a prayer meeting for him on his behalf. And we asked God, who's sovereign over every cell in his body, who's sovereign over the day he comes into the world and the day he's going to go, who's responsive to our prayers and loves to hear the prayers of his children, the God who doesn't promise to heal, but yet has this man's best interest at heart, we called upon the Lord to extend this man's life by 15 years so that he could look after his ill wife. Well, at that point in the prayer, someone got carried away and said, no, Lord, we pray for 30 years, <laughs> to which uh, the man who in, uh, in question said, hang on, I'm not sure that I want to be alive that long <laughs> when, you know, when I'm 90 years old uh, or more. So that was kind of funny. But here the, the psalmist is saying, Lord, double our lives, make us glad for as many years as we've been afflicted. Satisfy us. Establish the work of our hands. Make our work, our lives be worthwhile. Well, there was a prayer of intercession. Now, was it effective? Was it effective? 
we're given a hint. In verse 0, which is the title, we're told that this psalm was a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, that is part of the Bible, that title, and that is like a divine cross-reference that we're meant now to go to the story of the life of Moses in the book of Exodus, that we would understand this psalm and this intercession and how effective he is as an intercessor. So now, having been in Psalm 90, we're going to another Old Testament passage, Exodus 32. So please turn there in your Bibles. Just to set the scene, God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He has redeemed his people uh, through the blood of the Passover lamb. We celebrated that Thursday week ago, didn't we? And now the Israelites are gathered together around Mount Sinai so that they can worship God. That was the purpose of the Passover. They're now gathered there. This is a high moment. In fact, this is the first church. People gathered together around the word of God to learn to hear from God, that they may be his people and God may be their God. So they gather there, they hear the voice of God, the Ten Commandments, they're terrified. So Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law from God and to talk to God on their behalf. He's interceding. And after such a great deliverance, the Israelites do the unthinkable, the complete unthinkable. They commit apostasy against God and bow down and worship a golden calf. They think Moses has been too long up the mountain Moses' brother Aaron says, give me your gold. He throws it in the fire. He fashions a calf and then says, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Can you believe it? Now, of course, none of this escapes the Lord's attention when he's up on the mountain. And so he's up there and justifiably he is angry. Verse Exodus chapter 32, verse uh, 9. I have seen these people, the Lord says to Moses, they are a stiff-necked people. And judgment is imminent. He says, the Lord says to Moses, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. He has pronounced judgment day, imminent judgment day, upon the people of God. What's to be done? Well, there is a need like never before for Moses to intercede. And what Moses said is astounding. Um, He intercedes, O Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hand? You've rescued them. You've delivered them. Why destroy them right now? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out? Don't sully your name, God. Don't bring dishonor to you in the minds of the Egyptians who don't believe in you. Um, And then Moses uses this word again. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Repent. And do not bring disaster upon your people. It's a massively bold prayer, massively courageous. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and the promise that you would bring them out into this land and they would be your inheritance forever. Well, what is the outcome of such astounding, bold, fervent, desperate intercession from Moses, the mediator? Look at verse 14. It's astounding. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. The Lord relented because of one man's prayer, one effective mediator's intercession on behalf of the people. It is astounding. Do you see what Moses has done? He has asked the Lord to turn and the Lord has listened. He has responded 
and he didn't bring on them the judgment day that he had planned. Moses reverses judgment day for the people. Now, what happens then? Moses goes down the mountain. It's it's ugly. The people are uh, still indulging in this revelry. And Moses breaks the Ten Commandments tablets in anger. He calls anyone on the Lord's side to come and join him. The Levites rally and there's a bloodbath. 3,000 people die that day. But still, there's the need for atonement. Because, uh, verse 30, the next day Moses says to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. The sin has been stopped, yes. But there's still the guilt that remains on the people for the sin that they have done. So atonement needs to be made. That, that God's anger needs to be turned away from them completely. So Moses goes up. And again, he intercedes on behalf of the people. And verse 32, he he intercedes in in an astounding way, a selfless way, a very sacrificial way. But now please forgive their sin. And if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. Do you you see what he's saying? Blot me out of the book of life. Now, I don't know anyone really that's prayed a prayer like that. God, if you're not going to forgive these people, then... May I never, ever have eternal life. May I eternally suffer your wrath. That is a selfless and sacrificial prayer. Well, how does the chapter end? The chapter ends without atonement having been made. There is still the need for atonement. Verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, says the Lord. Go and lead the people. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. There is still the need for atonement, even after the effective mediation of Moses. And that means that as effective and as bold as Moses' mediation is, uh, was, uh, there is the need for a better mediator. And that's why Easter and Jesus Christ is relevant for us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, we are told that Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, uh, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Isn't that remarkable? What's Jesus doing now? He's alive in heaven. Is he just twiddling his thumbs waiting for judgment day? No. Is he just lying down? No. He is in heaven right now on May 19th. He is interceding for you and he is interceding for me. What's he interceding? He is functioning as our high priest. Now, a high priest, of course, had the job of providing atonement. And this is what Jesus did on Good Friday, where he gave up his life once for all. Atonement means for God's anger to be turned away. So Jesus put himself in the place of you and me. He who was innocent suffered in the place of the guilty And God's anger was poured out upon him. He suffered God's wrath. He drank the cup of wrath to its dregs until it was extinguished. And God's anger has now turned away. Atonement has been made. So in Romans 8, uh, what this means is that sinners, through faith in Jesus' blood, can be justified, which means in God's sight we can be declared to be righteous. What Jesus does... In heaven, what he's doing now in heaven is if in any way we are 
or accusations are being hurled against us. Jesus is saying, no, I died for them. My blood atoned for them. Uh, The sacrifice was complete. It worked. There was no need for any other. Once for all, all people, all time, my blood has atoned for them. And if anyone has faith in me, uh, it's effective for them. And so therefore, they are right in your sight. Um, Now, it's not like God and Jesus are pitted against one another here, but he's applying applying, uh, the merits of his death to us in heaven. He exists as our high priest who has made atonement. Okay. Um, Now, if we are going to have a high priest in heaven who then effectively intercedes for us on a daily basis concerning our own needs, we need someone who uh, satisfies some criteria. You need to have someone who is God but human. Uh, uh, Only someone who's divine can actually be in the presence of God at God's right hand, right there with God to be able to effectively mediate for us. But also he needs to be um, human, to know exactly what it's like to be you, to know what it's like to be tempted. We're told Jesus was tempted in every way, to know what it's like to suffer, to know what it's like to be frustrated, to know what it's like, um, uh, you know, to deal with temptation, uh, struggle, um, to suffer as a human being. And because Jesus suffered uh, in our place and took on human flesh, he knows exactly what it's like. He can mediate. Um, So he needs to be divine, yet human. He needs to be sinless and sacrificial. Being sinless means, of course, His life can count as the atoning sacrifice for us. And like Moses, who prayed, blot out me, uh, please blot me out if you won't forgive, needs to be sacrificial. Jesus gave up his life, of course, to be that sacrifice. He needs to be slain. That is, he needed to be uh, punished, killed, because the punishment of sin is death. He needed to suffer that, but yet alive. Because what use is a high priest who's dead? The high priest needs to be alive. Now, Jesus is all those things which makes him our effective mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the first point of three application, first point, is that we only have one mediator. What that means is we we can approach God through Jesus. We don't need to approach God through anyone else. Now, you'll have heard, or maybe you've done it yourself, you'll have thought, I need to approach God through someone else. Jesus is distant. I need to approach God through Mary. I need to approach God through a saint. I need to approach God through a priest. Now, why would someone think that? Maybe they think I need to approach God through Mary because she is compassionate in a way I'm not sure Jesus will be compassionate about. But she's a mother, right? Mums are compassionate. Or maybe I need to approach God through a priest because he understands the human condition. Or maybe I need to approach God through a saint because a saint will be close to God. Well, to think that someone could be more compassionate or more understanding of what it's like to be human or closer to God than Jesus is actually blasphemous. Uh, No one can be closer to God than God the Son. (laughs) 
who is at the Father's side, to think that someone else is closer to God is to elevate that person. That's blasphemous. Uh, To think that uh, someone could understand us better than Jesus could. That's blasphemous. No priest can understand what it's like to be like you more than Jesus can. Why? Because every one of us, every other person, including priests, we've all sinned. Jesus has resisted temptation and never sinned. That means that he understands the struggle of what it's like to be a human, what it's like to endure temptation. He understands it much better than anyone. No one can understand what it's like to be human as much as Jesus does. And no one is more compassionate. You know, um, we, we think, well, Mary, Mary, she was compassionate. Mothers are compassionate. Well, mothers were part of the crowds who told uh, Bartimaeus to shush up. Mothers were part of the crowd that said, no, 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 the, disciple, uh, the children shouldn't come to Jesus. Uh, mothers were part of the crowd who wanted Jesus to move on from where Zacchaeus was looking down from the sycamore tree. Jesus was not like that. Jesus was the one who insisted that the children come to him because he had compassion. Jesus was the one who insisted against people's, um, people's protests that Bartimaeus should come to him, and he healed him. Jesus was the one who stopped in that procession uh, and looked up at Zacchaeus and said, come down, I must stay at your house today. Jesus exudes compassion. When his disciples um, went out into the desert and the people were gathered there, the 5,000, and they were just fed up, they wanted to send them away, Jesus was the one who had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. To say that someone else could be more compassionate than Jesus is to do him an, an, an injustice. It's to get it wrong. We don't need another high priest. He is totally everything that we need. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Second point of application um, is that we can have assurance uh, when our hearts condemn us. Uh, The fact that we know that Jesus, our high priest, is in heaven and he is the one who has made atonement for our sins and he is interceding for us means that whenever our hearts condemn us, we can have great assurance and comfort because we know Jesus is actually applying the finished work of his death on the cross in heaven on our behalf, that's immensely comforting to know that Jesus is like that. Uh, Hebrews 4 says uh, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence that we can receive mercy. Mercy, not condemnation, but mercy. And the third point of application is that Uh, because Jesus is in heaven and praying for us as our mediator, we can have grace to help us in our time of need. Um, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, uh, puts this plainly. Let me find it for you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or again, at the end of chapter 4, we can receive from him grace to help us in our time of need. What does this mean? This means that when you or I go through a temptation or a struggle, we can call upon the Lord Jesus, who will ask the Father. And because he in heaven is an effective mediator, the Father will at once give us the grace to help us in our time of struggle and trial. 
I have found in my own life that it's those times when I'm experiencing temptation and I, there's a part of me that wants to walk into sin. When I have resisted and I have asked God for help, even though the struggle is real, I've asked uh, God for help. It's been given. Why? Because Jesus is asking the Father on my behalf, Jesus who understands, he's asking that God would supply by his spirit the extra grace that I need, the strength to endure, the strength to say no. Uh, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Well, if you ask in your time of trial, if you ask in your time of struggle, uh, God will answer that prayer. Why? Because Jesus in heaven is interceding for you and for me on our behalf. And that's the value, you see, of having Jesus who's alive after Easter Sunday. So you pray? Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he understands. Thank you that he was sinless and makes atonement for our sins. Thank you that he was sacrificial and gave up his life as an atoning sacrifice for us. Thank you that he's bold in mediation, like Moses, but he's effective in the way in which Moses wasn't or couldn't be because he was just one of us. But thank you that Jesus is one of us, but different, sinless, the Son of God, and the only high priest we need. Father, thank you that this gives us great assurance and confidence whenever our hearts condemn us and that whenever we go through difficulties in our life. Thank you that Jesus understands and he's praying for us right now and he will keep doing it because he's alive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You might like to look up Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 to 26 and meditate on those.